0: everyone it's gloria and welcome to season four episode five of miss independent today i'm here with chrissy who is a financial independence blogger at eat sleep breathe fi and podcaster at explore fi canada we will be chatting about chrissy and her family of four's financial independence journey while living in vancouver hope you enjoy (laughs) I am here today with Chrissy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So uh, my name is Chrissy, and I have a blog, Eat, Sleep, Breathe Fi, and I also run a podcast, Explorify Canada. Uh, As you can tell, I'm crazy about FI, (laughs) financial independence, (laughs) because I have two projects that focus on that. And uh, I am currently 42 years old. I have a husband and two kids. My kids are 13 and 15, and we live in Vancouver. And uh, we are on our journey to FI or Fire, whichever you prefer. Um, I prefer FI for different reasons, but you know, technically, we are on the path to Fire because most likely um, my husband will retire early. Uh, as for me, I have been a stay-at-home mom since my first son was born. So. I already lived the financially independent (laughs) lifestyle. So it's more my husband's life that will change a lot uh, once we reach our number.
0: That's awesome. And what is your relationship with money?
1: My relationship with money, I've been very lucky that it's always been quite positive. Uh, My parents were immigrants from Hong Kong, and so they came with very little money. And so I grew up. We were probably a, a like lower middle class to middle class. And so we didn't have a ton of money, but my parents knew how to save. They worked hard and knew how to save money. And eventually they also learned how to invest it in the stock market. So uh, they built themselves up from almost literally nothing to a very successful middle class class. Uh, Lifestyle and they provided for three children, and they even were able to uh, let my mom stay home for a few years when my sister and I were born. And um, unfortunately, she had to go back to work when my brother was born. But at the same time, they were providing a very comfortable lifestyle for us and uh, doing it just with very regular jobs. Uh, They were not um, high earners by any stretch of the imagination, but with their frugality and their commitment to saving a lot of their money and investing it, they were able to give us very nice lifestyles. And there was never anything that we needed that we didn't have. Of course, there are many wants, but um, mm-hmm. we're happy and uh, we knew we were loved and they provide it really well for us. So yeah, my relationship with money has always been good because of the upbringing that I had.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Honestly, immigrant parents are the OG like frugality <laughs> masters. For sure. Yeah,
1: I always say that my parents were mustachian before it was cool. Yeah, that's in reference to Mr. Money Mustache, but yeah, they were. They all the things Mr. Money Mustache advocates and that he does. My parents did that kind of stuff, you know, doing doing everything on your own, cooking at home, just not over consuming. That that was them, and that was my childhood.
0: Mm -hmm. So today's topic is all about reaching financial independence or financial independence and retiring early, but we will get into that. So I understand that your husband doesn't really have any intention of quitting his job and your work is full-time mom. So I'm interested in knowing what FI means to you and your family and how you think your lives would change once you've reached FI. For
1: me, I'm already kind of living that lifestyle because I've been a stay-at-home mom and my husband, he works full time, more than full-time hours really. But uh, for him, what it would mean is that he would have more time to spend on the things that he enjoys and more time for the people that he wants to spend time with, um, including his parents, other family members and friends, and, and of course with us. So the big picture is that that's what it would mean. But also for him, It doesn't necessarily mean that he'll retire right away just because we reach our number because he does love his job. And the funny thing is, the closer we get to financial independence, the more he's actually loving his job. (laughs) I don't know if they play into each other. Maybe it's because the pressure of having to work because you have to is slowly um, decreasing. Uh, He's realizing that, you know, I, I don't have to leave this job if I don't want to because it's bringing me joy and he, he loves what he's doing. So why not keep going? So yes, FI is kind of a number and uh, it could change things for us, but at the same time, it may not depending on how my husband feels about his job.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of why you like to call it financial independence as opposed to the retire early part, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have no problems with that. I I know there are people who have a really hard time accepting that retire early part. They really (laughs) are bothered by it. It doesn't bother me. I actually embrace it. And I I say, whatever you want to do when you early retire, go for it. But I find it brings up too many arguments with people who are not in the community, who disagree very strongly, strongly with people retiring in their 30s and 40s, and they don't understand what we mean by that. When we say retire early, they think that we're just going to do nothing and just be (laughs) lazy and not contribute to the world anymore. And that's so far from the truth, but we get lost into that argument. And then, so I'd rather just cut that whole part out and focus on the financial independence, because that's just good for everybody to try to strive for that independence, even if it's incrementally, even if it's just to get to retirement at a regular age that's something I think everybody wants. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Just having that good financial foundation so that you can live the life that you want really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how did you come across this movement and what interested you about it initially? I know you mentioned a little bit about Mr. Money Mustache and how you were raised frugally. So what exactly changed when you discovered like Mr. Money Mustache?
1: Well, the interesting thing was, like I said, I grew up basically the way yeah. <laughs> Mr. Money Mustache is. So for me, it it was weird that it was mind blowing because I knew all this stuff. But I think what it did was because I've, I'm a second generation Canadian, like I, my parents were, you know, came here because I grew up fully with Canadian mindsets. Maybe I was slightly less frugal than my parents, slightly less optimal. And so living the kind of lifestyle that we did, uh, we could have been more optimal. Like we already were really good savers. We were already pretty frugal, but there were a few things that I could have been more optimal with. And when I found Mr. Money Mustache, I realized, wow, I really could be tightening the belt a little bit more and it's not going to affect my lifestyle. Things like getting more serious about revisiting our recurring expenses, things like home insurance, car insurance, like really drilling down and seeing where we can cut a few hundred dollars here and there, over time, as you do that and you cut a whole bunch of things, you could be saving thousands per year, and that's what happened. Um, I was able to just, without changing our lifestyle, without losing anything, just drill down and get way more optimal and save even more money. And as well as that, the biggest thing for me was discovering through Mister Money Mustache that there's a thing called DIY investing because I used to think you had to go through a guy, you had to have this advisor mm-hmm. that you had to work with, and the fees were high and you don't know if they're actually doing a good job. And all of that was just so negative to me. And I never trusted anyone to give my money to that way. And so when I discovered that there was DIY investing, that changed everything. And I I realized you could do it and it's low cost and it's not hard. And you can learn it yourself. I I was fully on board. So that was the other thing that really changed when I discovered Mr. Money Mustache.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that DIY investing thing, I think at least for me um, growing up, I was always surrounded by, oh yeah, like you go to the bank and then that's how yeah. you invest your money. But beyond that, I had no idea what went on behind yeah. the scenes really. When I went to university, I studied accounting and finance and that's when I kind of learned more about how to invest. But yeah, like the robo advisors and the advent of all this technology within the recent years, I think has really helped people be able to access DIY investing a lot more.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I hope that it means that this coming generation of younger people will be way more financially stable than even my generation. Cause I'm, I'm part of Gen X. I'm kind of on the cusp. I'm I'm definitely not a millennial, but I'm a really young Gen X. So I feel like I don't really identify with either group. But I feel like, um, you know, in your generation and my kids' generation, things are so much easier and more accessible, and Mm -hmm. I think transparent. And that's the huge thing that you can see the fees now, and you can see where it's going, and how much you're paying, and it's so important to have that knowledge because it motivates you to then do better with your money. And it's so much easier now with all the, like you said, the platforms like robo advisors, it makes it so much simpler for people and more approachable. So I, I think it's wonderful. The direction things are headed.
0: Mm-hmm. I completely agree. You don't even have mm-hmm. to go to a bank. So yeah. yeah. It's all online. Mm-hmm. So what is your strategy for reaching FI? Do you have any specific tips that you found have been really helpful for you, like going through your journey?
1: It's always the basics, right? For for FI, um, you got to start and get the basics right. So I wrote a guest post for Barry Choi at Money We Have about this. It's just four simple steps to financial independence. So what I say is you should start by first calculating your FI number um, that is sort of the foundation. Because if you don't have a number to aim for, you don't know what steps to take to get there. So you start by calculating that. And the very simple way to do that is to figure out how much you spend per year and then multiply that by 25. It's a very loose rule of thumb. It's not necessarily what you should use as a hard and fast number once you're getting near the end and really making concrete plans. But just to start off with, that's the number one thing you should do figure out how much you spend and then multiply that by 25. And that's the number you should loosely aim for to to get to. And then after that is just taking the steps to work towards that number. So uh, you have to save your money. And sometimes if you don't have enough to save, it could mean that you have to earn more money. And then when you have enough extra, then you start investing and that's what will get you to financial independence. So for me, those are sort of the four basic steps to get started. And of course there's other things, you know, like the sprinkle on top <laughs> that you can use to sort of speed up your journey. Um, so there's like, the easy stuff like optimizing your expenses even more or trying to find more ways to earn money, trying to learn different ways to invest where you might be able to tilt your portfolio to get a little bit more extra with a little bit more risk. So there's lots of ways to do that. And you know you could go even further out, which is something I do. Um, you take on leveraged investing or using your home equity to invest. So there, there's lots of things that you can use to Juice your um, investment returns, but those are way in the distance. You know, first you really have to get that foundation right. And um, once you got that, then you can start exploring the more advanced options.
0: Yeah. And I think that that's something that a lot of people that I've spoken with have struggled with. Like they're really good at saving, but then they're kind of, Iffy about the investing part. They're like, oh, like, I don't want to put all of my eggs in one basket. Mm. And I'm just like, well, ETFs, like, you can kind of diversify that way. But they're like, but it's all in the stock market. Like, what (laughs) happens to the stock market? And I'm just like, you know what? You kind of have a point. Like, what, what happens if the stock market crashes? Because, yeah, like, if we go through like another 2008 level recession, it's its tough to recover from that. But I do know that the economy and the stock market goes in cycles. So mm-hmm. it does have its dips and then it'll have its high points and ultimately it does grow. But yeah, like what advice do you have people who are kind of scared of the stock market?
1: Well, my answer to that always is education. I know it's a hard ask because it's boring Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) and people
1: don't have time. They're busy. So, but that is really the only way through it. If you want to be wealthy, you have to learn how to become wealthy. Just like anything important, you have to put time and effort into it. You can't expect it to just happen. Mm -hmm. So and the lucky thing is there's so many ways and there are fun ways now to learn how to invest and do it successfully. And it's so easy. It's not hard you know, just break it down. If it's overwhelming, start with one book, like find the easiest book that you can find and then just get the ball rolling. And I feel like it's, it's a virtuous cycle because the more you learn, the more you invest, the more successful you are. And it just builds on yourself and you grow your confidence and then you grow your knowledge and then you can get more advanced and you can see better returns. And um, the other thing that I think is really important for people who are fearful is to have a long-term outlook. Like if you, the small, the shorter the time frame you look at, the scarier it gets. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the next month or even the next year, it's gonna be really bumpy. No matter how you cut it, it, it's just bumpy. That's the way the stock market is. If you're looking at a tiny time frame like that, you're always gonna be scared. But if you zoom out, if you're in your 20s, you have 40 or more years before retirement. Even if you retire early let's say in your 40s you probably have 15 to 20 years to look at that is a way more realistic time frame to look at and when you zoom out that far you see that it's not so bumpy after all things tend to smooth out over time and that kind of time frame and so what i always say is don't look at the day to day like don't even check your balances every week mm. at the most maybe check your statements once a month mm-hmm. just to make sure everything's on track um and then have a yearly uh, look at everything, your whole portfolio as a whole, that kind of thing. If, if you're the, a scared kind of person, that's what I would suggest, not to look very often. Over time, as you get used to it, then you could probably look every day and it's not going to affect you because you're used to it and you know that this is normal. So yeah, so those are my suggestions is to get educated and then just have a really long-term outlook because that's what will bring you success, just having that knowledge and and staying calm with the long-term outlook.
0: Yeah. I think that long-term outlook is definitely the most important thing. And sometimes it's hard to maintain that when you're like, oh my gosh, I'm losing thousands of dollars right now. It is.
1: It is. And if you're psychologically someone who is really affected by that, then it, like I say, it's better to not look. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, <'cause laughs> you, you know, the rational side of you knows it's going to be okay. But if you keep looking and exposing yourself to that fear it it may not be the best thing for you until you get more educated and more experienced and you know it's going to be okay because you've been through it a couple of times Mm -hmm. but until then maybe just be gentle with yourself and and not keep forcing yourself to look when it's bad
0: yeah yeah absolutely but then you like can't look away sometimes sometimes like it's just (laughs) it's true it's true (laughs) yeah like
1: all of us you know with this pandemic you're kind of attracted to the bad news Mm -hmm. it's human nature that's just the way we are
0: yeah exactly and on the flip side also just when the stocks are doing really well you're like oh my gosh like this is great Mm -hmm. like let me always check (laughs) (laughs) exactly yes there's nothing wrong with that either as long as you're not
1: tempted to buy something that Mm -hmm. maybe is um not the right kind of investment for you long term so yeah there's you have to know yourself, basically yeah. know yourself and, and what will lead you in the right direction instead of causing you to act out of anxiety or fear.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You mentioned that you live in Vancouver. Has it been difficult to live in such a high cost of living place?
1: Uh, at first, when I first discovered fire, I was like shaking my fist all the time, like Vancouver, why <laughs> used to be so expensive, this house that I live in, all my money is trapped in this house. But As I've moved along the FIRE journey, I've come to realize that there aren't necessarily huge differences sometimes. Once everything evens out, it's not necessarily more expensive to live in a high cost of living area because a lot of times you earn more income or there are economies of scale. For instance, groceries aren't always cheaper in a lower cost of living area. In fact, they could be more expensive or... um, Maybe car insurance is cheaper, but um, home insurance may be the same or more because you're living in in a different area with different kind of risks. So, the more I see other people's journeys, and I'm also I also have an interview series on my blog where I'm interviewing people from all over the world about their essential spending. So I, I've leveled the playing field so that people have the same expenses that I'm interviewing for for, and we're cutting out the discretionary spending. So this is just the essential expenses, and I'm kind of learning that. Um, There isn't that big of a spread um, between low cost of living and high cost of living areas when it comes to essentials. Yes, housing is one of the big, big ones. So I think that is one area where it's much harder in Vancouver. However, as I mentioned before, I've managed to use that to my advantage by using my home equity to invest. And so I've been able to unlock that equity that was just sitting there doing nothing and use that to invest. And so in a way, I turned a disadvantage into an advantage of living in a high cost of living area. And so there are pluses and minuses, and it's not as black and white as I originally thought it
0: was. Yeah, because I mean, I would imagine, yeah, like housing, food to be two of the largest expenses that people have. And the housing part of it is seems difficult because I know Toronto is also super high cost of living rent crazy and it's Mm -hmm. it just seems Mm -hmm. so difficult to be able to afford that house and like start building that home equity right like for someone my age I'm just like when will I be able to ever Mm -hmm. do that
1: yeah yeah that part is hard and I really feel for young people like you I don't have an easy answer for that (laughs) it, it is a difficult situation to be in and yet you have to live somewhere, right? You have mm-hmm. to figure out how. And so it seems like, you know, renting is is a good option and being on the financial independence journey, you are really good at saving. And so that is to your advantage as well, because you really know how to optimize where you rent and how much you pay, and then you can save the rest towards whether it's your early retirement or towards perhaps buying a place one day. And like I said, if you do manage to buy a place one day, you can also if you're advanced enough by that time, take advantage of leverage investing, something like the Smith Maneuver, where you use the equity or it, it helps to not only pay down your mortgage sooner, but helps you invest sooner. And so there are some ways around it, but it's not easy just mm-hmm. to get over that hump where you save enough of a down payment to buy your first place. It It is really hard. And I wish I had answers for young people. <laughs> and I worry about my kids, you know, they're, they're still young, but... Who knows what it's going to be like when they're ready to buy. Is it going to be even worse? So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: I'm sad. I feel sad for <laughs> younger people.
0: Yeah, I guess only time will tell. We'll we'll mm-hmm. see how the market goes. But I mean, it doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon.
1: No, no. Yeah, that's the unfortunate part. And maybe it could be that there's a boom in more of the suburbs and smaller areas. Or my dad, of course, who grew up in Hong Kong, he said it could turn into like Hong Kong where people just are okay with smaller spaces. They're just Mm -hmm. used to living in tiny little apartments with the whole family and that's just the norm and it's okay. And maybe we all just embrace that lifestyle anyway, because it's just better financially, better for the planet. And, you know, maybe that's the way that we all move.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've seen a lot of tiny houses, especially in like New Zealand and Australia. (sighs) And it's, it's just so fascinating how good people are with their space you know, it's crazy. I'm just like, wow, it's like Tetris, but real life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's really cool. Yeah. We travel a lot with my in-laws in their motorhome pre-COVID, of course, and motorhomes are like tiny homes. And it's pretty interesting to see the clever ways that they really use every little bit of space. And maybe that is the solution that more of us will live in smaller spaces. And maybe it's a great revolution because it, it just frees us to do other things. If our money's not all tied up in a big, huge place that we have to maintain, maybe it's for the better anyway.
0: Yeah. And also with the advent of remote work, I think that it'll be a possibility for a lot more people going forward. Yeah. Van life, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Van life. I don't, I don't know if I'd be able to do it. But
1: <laughs> it, yeah, sounds, it sounds
0: fun. It does. It really does. I know that you're a foodie and you mentioned that you are a family of four. How has that played into your five journey? Mm-hmm.
1: Actually, it's a big part of our journey because now that we're mortgage-free, housing is no longer our biggest expense. It's actually food now, which is kind of shocking to me. I yeah. didn't realize that food was such a huge part of our budget. But we, even as a family of four, even living in an expensive area, we managed to, s- to not spend too much on food. I believe I spend around 550 per month, 500 or 550 I don't remember now. but
0: For your entire family? Yeah, for oh four gosh. people and people... When I revealed that in
1: the interview I did with myself about our essential spending, people were like, "How did you how do you spend so little?" And mm-hmm. I on one hand I feel like I don't do anything extraordinary, but at the same time I thought about it and I thought I spend quite a bit of time with meal planning, meal prep and cooking and cleaning. Mm-hmm. And that's what you pay for when you're paying for convenience foods and for restaurant cooked foods. It's the labor of someone else doing that for you and And understandably, you can see why it's expensive. I mean, these people who work in the food service industry don't even earn a lot of money. And yet takeout food, restaurant food is still expensive and it's getting more. So, Mm -hmm. of course, it needs to support these people and give them a living wage. And so by me doing a lot of that labor at home, cooking groceries, buying in bulk, buying on sale, it all combines to allow us to have to be foodies and really enjoy food and cook the kind of food that we want, but not spend a lot of money. And at the same time, we do want to support businesses. And so it gives us more leeway to be able to get takeout and eat at restaurants if we want to as a treat. But we just we don't make it that, that a habit. It's just a treat for us. Sometimes it's once a week, once every other week, sometimes it's only once a month. It just depends what we feel like doing. Or if it's in the summertime, we tend to go up more, especially during COVID. <laughs> it's not safe to eat in restaurants. And so in the summer, we will eat out at patios more often, for instance. Mm-hmm. But in the winter, we kind of hunker down and we just stay at home and cook more, more of the time. And so I think that's how you really can save on food when you really think that the expensive food is the labor cost. And if you really take on more of the work of prepping and cooking and shopping and planning all that yourself, that's where you can really derive a lot of the savings. And that's for us been true. That's how we save a lot of money. And yet I cook all kinds of food that I would say it's pretty close to restaurant quality. Um, we like all kinds of food. We love different types of cuisine. And instead of having to go to restaurants to get it, um, we try it once at a restaurant and then I find the recipe and then I make it at home. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, it saves us lots and lots of money.
0: So you are a stay-at-home mom. How has this affected your FI plan? Because I know a lot of the five people that I read about, they're like dual income, no kids. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, well, of course you can make it work. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I sometimes I, I'm just so envious of people like that because it I wouldn't say it's effortless. It still takes a lot of work, but mm-hmm. you have a lot less uh, roadblocks in your way when it, you're dual income and you can just throw yourself into earning money and getting to fire. Uh, good for them, that's amazing. But a lot of us do have kids or other dependents or other challenges in our life that make it a bit harder. And, and for us, um, the choice for me to become a stay-at-home mom we weren't into fire when we made that decision and I have a feeling it probably would have affected our choice, but um, in a way I'm glad it didn't because uh, I'm really glad that I've had the opportunity to be a stay at home mom this whole time to my kids. Uh, it's given us a quality of life that we couldn't have had if we were dual income. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I have a lot of I friends and family who are dual income and I feel for them. It's not easy uh, to have that, kind of time pressure where both parents are working it's very stressful and so uh, you end up spending more on things like convenience because it's a necessity like just to survive to make it day-to-day mm-hmm. so you don't lose your sanity and everyone's not uh, ready to strangle each other you deem <laughs> to pay for more services more conveniences and uh, it's justified because you only have so much time in the day and If it makes it a little bit easier and gives you more time to spend with your kids to spend money on more takeout, go for it. You know, you need that. So I have been very fortunate that I've been able to be a stay at home mom, but it did come at a cost. Uh, I think it delayed our journey by quite a few years. Uh, We probably would have been FI a while ago if I hadn't become a stay at home mom. But at the same time, I it's not a black and white equation where it's just you lose completely lose one person's income because I realized, and I wrote a post for a friend, Bob at Talkend.com. He's another fire blogger. And we kind of worked on this post together where we tried to figure out the cost of a stay at home parent. And we realized that it's not just completely losing one person's salary. You actually gain some benefits from having a stay at home parent. And so, um, you know, I can bring something to the table, like I learned how to invest and how to optimize our money. And um, my husband would never do those kinds of things. He's just not interested in the money <laughs> stuff. And so with me having the time to do those kinds of things, it's actually partially made up for the loss of my income. And also, of course, childcare is a big thing, not having to pay for childcare. And cooking, you know, the amount of cooking that I do, it saves us hundreds, if not more than that um, per month. Mm -hmm. Um, I know how expensive it can be to feed a family, especially if you have to resort to conveniences. And so there are ways that a stay-at-home parent can really help offset the loss of salary. And so I know it's still expensive. It's still not a a decision that everyone can make. And I know I'm very privileged to have that option, but I would encourage if, if you're possibly able to do it, run some numbers and see how much you can save and look up the article that I wrote on Bob's uh, website. You actually might might see some areas that you didn't realize that you might be able to save money by shifting to one parent, either working part-time or even being at home full time. Um, It may not be as big of a hit as you think.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll definitely link that in the show notes as well. And yeah, it's interesting because yes, childcare, huge expense, I know that. And also the cooking and also just a lot of housework that yeah. people potentially do pay someone to do, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. all is very expensive too. So, yeah, like I wouldn't be surprised that it's actually more affordable than people would normally think like at first glance.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely.
0: So you mentioned a little bit about having students, hosting students. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, for us, it was a
1: really good option. When we had kids, of course, we lost my income and we're thinking and when we bought our house we were always keeping this in the back of our mind either that we would host students so we want an extra bedroom so we could do that or have a tenant in the basement suite and we were lucky that my husband's uncle had hosted students when uh, their kids were young and they recommended it to us and they had a really good experience for many years doing it and so we already had an introduction to it through that and so we're like it sounds good it's something that could work for us and then so we decided to uh, start hosting students and it's what I, I describe it as a house hack hybrid with a side hustle. <laughs> in a way, it's kind of a small business in that you're in the hospitality industry in a way, because you're you're bringing the students over and you're really trying to show them that where you live is great and you want to give give them a good experience, Have them comfortable and happy and well fed in your house. But at the same time, it's also a house hack because you are paying for that space anyway. You're paying for the electricity and the heat to and the property tax, all of that you're already paying for anyway. But by bringing students into the house, you're using underutilized rooms to earn some income. And so for us, it was a perfect way to earn a little bit of extra income. We made on average like ten to twelve thousand per year hosting students, and it's not a ton of money, but it was enough for us to. Um, not go in the red. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it allowed us to save a little bit every month as well as just be comfortable. We, we could pay for all of our expenses, but uh, we had a little bit le- left over at the end to either take small vacations or uh, put towards our investments. And so uh, it made a big difference for us and we did it for a really long time. We just love it. It's not just obviously not for the income. If you do it only for the income, you'll hate it because it takes over your life when when you're doing it. You're having these strangers in your house and you're living with them. You have to learn to live together. But for us, the benefits um, of what it's taught us and taught our kids and all the people that we've met over the years, for us, it's more a lifestyle than it is anything else. It's wonderful. And I think it's something people should consider if they'd like to try earning a little bit of extra income from the house.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting alternative to just say like Airbnb or renting out a room Mm -hmm. to a tenant. And it could be something that other people haven't considered and could potentially consider post COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) What advice would you give to people who are looking to start their financial independence journey?
1: my biggest advice is just get started.
0: <laughs> I think that that
1: is my biggest regret about our investments and in finances. Like, yes, we were pretty good and we did always have our money invested, but it wasn't as optimal as it could have been. And I kind of ignored stuff and just let them just lie there, which is probably okay. But uh, I think if I had, taken the reins earlier and, and just started learning, we could be a lot farther ahead um, than we are now. Yes, we did. Okay. And we were fine. But I think um, having that time on your side, getting started early, and having time work for you as early as you can makes such a difference. So uh, just get started. Uh, And if it's overwhelming, chop it down into smaller components and then start with the smallest step that you can take and just take one small step every day or every week, every month, whatever you need to break it down to. And before you know it, you've got the ball rolling. And then you look back in a year and you're just like, wow, I did that much in a year. But when you're going through it, it seems like you're not accomplishing much, but I think that's something that humans do. They say that, you know, we, we overestimate how much we can do a day, but we underestimate how much we can do in a year. And, Mm -hmm. um, we all do that. Uh, So just use that to your advantage and just get started and uh, do what you can each day and get a little bit better with your money all the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great advice. And especially with the time thing, because yeah, the earlier that you start, the more time you have to let your money compound and your wealth build. And if people want to find you on the internet, where can they find you?
1: Well, there's two places. My blog is eatsleepbreathefi.com. And you'll find all my social media there. I'm pretty active on Twitter and I'm in a lot of Facebook groups as well, um, FI Focus Facebook groups. So if you look on my blog, you'll find all the places that I'm on online, as well as um, my podcast, Explore FI Canada. So um, there, we're a bi-weekly podcast. Every other Friday, we release an episode and we talk to Canadians in the FI community and share their stories.
0: Awesome. awesome. Well, this brings us to the end of our show. Chrissy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. And thank
1: you for doing what you do for young Canadians and helping them get more financially savvy.
0: As the aspiring Misfindependent, this is Gloria signing out. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you're using Apple Pods, please toss me five stars. It would help me so, so much. So see you next time. Until then, stay healthy and grow wealthy.